Hi, everybody. This is Aarti from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present, and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. Acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we are going to be speaking to Zonk about the work that he's doing at the moment and what led to it. Welcome, Zonk. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Adi. Um, thanks for having me. Well, um, I'm a 45-year-old um, white bloke who grew up in Germany, lives in Australia. Has lived, uh, I've lived here for 22 years now. Um, moved into the Garvin Valley 10 years ago and haven't looked back. Um, I have two lovely children together with my wife, Louise, and we live in Dukey. Um, and um, I really like doing new things. I hate maintenance. I think that's probably the nutshell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. So, Zonk, first of all, we tell us what you do at the moment and... Let's then work our way backwards to see what led to it. Yeah. Um, so I work with a small number of social workers, mental health social workers, youth workers, um, and volunteers um, to deliver, a, a, I guess, a, a health promotion charity, a registered health promotion charity called Gizabike. Um, Give a break. So, give us a break. Is um, is a charity that works predominantly with young people in tricky situations. Um, I guess we felt that there was a gap um, where young people uh, who didn't like accessing former structures of supports, whether that's um, clinical mental health services or others, um, but still needed some supports, didn't really have anything or anywhere to go to. And we felt that um, running an informal certain structure program that takes place outdoors as a whole heap of fun um, might be a really good way of, uh, of delivering um, something that, that makes a difference in young people's lives when they probably need it most. Yeah. Um, what got you interested in this work? And how did it start? Like, what's the, yeah, I have so many questions. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, so it's it's tricky because there's lots of strings to that to that. So there's lots of different answers, and there's not a single answer that says this is what led to that. Um, so so maybe the, the most obvious one is that um, uh, until maybe four years ago, I was running um, population health agencies or programs services, and some of those and the general practice, and all of those had a mental health component of sorts. Um, and uh, some of those um, roles gave me an eagle eye view sort of of the health problems across the Golden Valley or across Melbourne where I worked beforehand um, and uh, and mental health keeps popping up as a, as a critical issue uh, and youth mental health kept popping up as a critical issue um, and when running organizations or health organizations that delivered health services including mental health services um, 
we saw a pretty typical presentation um, of both young people, but also middle-aged people who came at a point in time that had to do with identifying who one is, who am I? And I think that time is, you know, teenagehood is, is, a, is one of those critical times. The other time is when the kids are, are starting to grow up and doing their own thing. And, and we adults are left to think about, okay, well, if I'm not, you know, a carer, who am I? So I think it's those two key moments um, that we saw more presentations of. And, and particularly for young people, well, there was headspace, but that wasn't really accessed to the extent that it probably could. Um, and waiting lists are a problem. There were lots of private mental health providers with long waiting lists, as you as you know yourself. And as a speech pathologist, it's very similar. Um, and uh, and we thought, well, how about running a health promotion uh, intervention or program that um, isn't clinical uh, and that provides young people with the opportunity of having a safe environment for a period of time in which they can be listened to, in which in which they can find their voice be who they want to be um, and, and be listened to. Uh, and then support it afterwards to convert, you know, that newfound sense of self into, uh, into a longer lasting reality. Um, and uh, and so, so that was one string. The other string was that my family and I are very keen off-road tourers. You know, we, we travel with our four-wheel drive and our camper trailer a huge amount. So whether it's Cape York or uh, Simpson Desert with friends or whatever that me, means. So we, we've been around a lot and we felt that traveling together is a really powerful way of connecting. Exploring together is, uh, is a really power, powerful way of connecting and discovering beauty uh, together is a beautiful thing because you talk about it together, you share an experience together. Uh, and that, that has a wonderful way of putting all of us, uh, us in to, into the here and now. And so you forget about other stuff that might be going on and you focus on the here and now, that sort of mindfulness almost of, of that. So that was another aspect. And then there was also, you know, you know, my middle age, you know, in that time, as I described just then, when people would present for mental health consults in, in clinical services, well, I was that person, you know, and, and um, and I was con concerned with, oh, well, I've been chasing the wrong thing all my life so far. And, and well, if that's not what I want to do, what do I want to do? So, um, so all of those things sort of came together at the same time. And, uh, and um, I had this dream of if I could ever create a health promotion show that does off-road touring and mental health programs wrapped into the one that do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, it didn't take me that long to convert that. And so that's how Gizabak was born. That's... Absolutely incredible, Zong. Just listening to you talk about it, but also then trying to not imagine, but trying to sort of understand your experiences as well. And one of the things I would love to unpack a little bit further is you mentioned that traveling with your family um, gave you such a strong connection anchor and it was powerful. Can we unpack that a little bit more? um and see like tell us what it was like for you um why was it so powerful what sort of connections like what actually happened in those times when you were there with your family off-road um if you look at this is a this is slightly slightly different answer maybe to what you expect but if you look at modern house design mm. often enough there's a prime space for a large tv um, and so lounge rooms are designed not around the dining table, 
but they're often designed around the TV. Um, and and the TV goes, you know, at dinner time, it goes all day long, you know, and, and it's the focal point. Um, and not that long ago, it used to be the other way around, where the, the dinner table used to be the focal point of the design, you know, the, the togetherness, the, you know, the having friends coming over and doing all of those kind of things. Well, if you look at modern house design, yes, you've got an entertainment area, but you also have this design around the TV. And, and um, we were a small family of only two kids in Louise and me. The rest of our family is overseas. Um, so we're both migrants um, and we had learned to somewhat be an island um, because when you move to a new country by yourselves it takes a while to make friends when you move from the city to regional Victoria you discover that everyone has a very tight-knit network that sometimes goes with generations and it's very difficult to break into that so you you have to be incredibly self-reliant mm -hmm. and so that togetherness to us is very important Number one, number two, as migrants, we are, and we're not migrants out of necessity, we're migrants out of curiosity. Um, so we come from a position, I guess, of huge privilege of being able to say, hey, let's go and move to X, Y, Z. You know, so that's that's how I got here and independently my wife got here. So I guess we're maybe more adventurous by, by nature because that's what we did at the time. And so we like to explore. Um, so... Being an island as a family, meaning that we have to get along together, you know, so we have, we have to work together to make things work, you know, whether that's earning an income or whether that's solving problems or um, working through problems together, uh, whether it's in a relationship or a family or whether they're financial or whether, you know, whatever that might be, we have to work those things out because it's just us. Um, and of course, that's changed since we've got wonderful friendships here now, but, you know, we're used to having to start with just us. Um, and, and when you travel together, it is just you and, uh, and you don't have a TV and you don't have any distractions. It's there's, there's a car we traveled without trailer most of the time at the time. So just a car and everything you need for six weeks is in that car. Um, and you plan the trip together and you, the, the road is part of your journey and you're sitting in this car together and you have to talk. You know, you can, you can only listen to podcasts that much. You, know? you actually have to talk and, uh, and you have to work out where you're going to sleep or how you're going to arrange things or what you're going to eat, you know, make your meal plans together. You, you really have to work as a team. And, and of course, you get frustrated with each other when you're living that close quarters, but you have to work that out. Um, and you're discovering stuff together. And so, so I think that really living closely together and relying on each other and having to work stuff out mm -hmm. with each other um, is something that maybe sometimes we forget how to do because there's so many distractions, you know? So you might know this term from your work is that sort of dissociate, you know? When we're presented with a challenge and we might flee, we might fight or we might dissociate or freeze. And so social media, TV is a dissociation medium, you know, so you can just switch off from a problem by just delving into that alternate reality. Um, and, and when you're traveling, you don't have that opportunity. Um, you really have to work stuff out. And I think that's beautiful. And that's, that's, that's something, that's an art. I think that collectively as a community, um, we are at risk of losing. Um, because of the way that we're now connecting or not connecting anymore with each other. And so 
that's one of the things that's really powerful about traveling together. Um, you, you really have to work as a team. You really have to overcome difficulties together. And, uh, and you really appreciate beauty together. You know, when you get to a new spot, there's a brilliant swimming spot with beautiful crystal clear pools you can dive into. And you enjoy that. And around the campfire in the evening, you talk about, you know, what was your highlight of the day? And, and you talk about the various things that have happened. You know, and someone might mention this native lily that grows, that grew there and was just a wonderful color drop. Or the other one might talk about that rock pool that they dive into. And another one might talk about this hike that really challenged them, but they overcame it. You know, and, and sharing those kind of highlights every evening around the campfires is, is a really nice thing. I learned that from a friend of mine. Hey, Dolly. Um, I learned that from a friend of mine. He, he, he did this on one of the group camps that we did as a, as a fa family friends. And, and I thought it was a wonderful thing to do. Um, and so, yeah, so that's one of those. Or that, those are a few of those things. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. Um, and, you know, so that takes me to a space where I, um, before COVID, so in 2019, um, with a couple of friends and uh, my friend's daughter, we went in with the Camino and that was um, absolutely incredible. Um, but sort of reflecting on what you are saying and going, it was so nice just to go, we had to do four things in a day but then connect with each other or or not if you don't want to like there was there was that freedom of choice but then um yeah just what that experience was like and i can try to imagine like with multiple um experiences like that how yeah how wonderful that idea of uh not just the idea but that togetherness actually is so uh, yeah. and you just mentioned something that that resonated because another friend of mine, Kirsten, I guess, um, uh, she's very clever. And, and she recently um, suggested to me that maybe that sort of shift away from the work I used to do and doing Gizzy Break was a shift away from a goal focus and towards a values focus um, or a life that's more focused on values as opposed to goals. And I think journeying together does that too. Um, you know, the the, the old sort of saying of, you know, the, the journey is what's important. It's actually not getting to the goal. Um, and I think that's exactly what this is about. It's a great analogy. And, and you know, the Camino would be another one of those where it's actually not about getting to the end. It's not about that. It's about the transformation that you're hoping it will bring about. And, and some people um, re reflect on that in spiritual terms, mm -hmm. but really it's about a mindset question and how you shift your mind from being focused on material goals or um, career goals or any of those kind of things to more values. You know, who am I and how do I want to live my life? Um, and, and if traveling can produce that sort of shift and it can, it has, then while well, maybe there is a way that we can encapsulate that essence of that shift um, into a program uh, that, that can help people focus more on who am I and what are my values and then what do I want to do? Absolutely. And I love that sort of differentiating between what's a goal and what's a value. And because there is this, such a blurred line um, yeah. where when there is the lack of clarity, the, there are all of these blurred lines. But then there are moments of clarity and those moments during the mm. traveling or hiking or, you know, multiple sort of um, stars aligning themselves to then promote this clarity. 
the goals and values. Um, no, that was, yeah, thank you for sharing that. The other thing I wanted to ask was, is your is what you are doing or your, say your love for traveling and adventure um, and togetherness reflective of what childhood like what, what your Not at all. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. It, it's, de it's definitely a dream, right? So, 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 um, it's too funny because some, sometimes, you know, sometimes the young people that, that we take out think that, you know, like you must be this adventurer and this, you know, this fearless sort of person who does all of these things. The opposite is true. Yeah. I, I'm a real scaredy cat, totally. And, uh, and in so many ways, when I, when I grew up, my mum was a lovely, lovely person uh, and an extremely good mother. And in fact, she was she was incredibly protective of us, which is lovely. And I can tell you, as, as dad, I can totally understand that. But it also meant that I never had to fight any battles. Mm. Uh, it meant that I could avoid any confrontation mm. because my mum would fight those battles for me when I was little. Um, and it meant that from from that moment on, I'd say until teenagehood, mm. I used avoidance of any challenges probably as my key strategy, um, and and that's not healthy. Mm. Um, so so when I became a teenager, my parents were going through a split up at the time, and I I found this new group of friends, and they were all a little bit. Not all of them, some of them were a little bit cheeky and were up to no good at times. And so that provided for a fair bit of adrenaline. And you know, when you're a teenage boy, adrenaline is a good thing. Um, and uh, well, it's always a good thing, really, if it's healthy. Um, so, so that opened my eyes to a completely different world that was full of challenges, but also full of excitement. Mm -hmm. And so sort of, I sort of charted a different path. I stopped going to school very much, um, which was a problem at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got through school, but just barely because um, I wasn't attending as much as I probably could have. Um, and, uh, and then went to uni and, you know, was bored at uni and didn't attend as much as I could have because there was much more exciting stuff to do. So it was a real transformation from, from, you know, really scared teenager to then actively putting myself into situation that were, that I perceived at high risk. Others wouldn't because they, they knew how to overcome challenges, navigate challenges better for me. It was really anxiety-inducing at times, but I, I looked for those moments uh, because I felt I needed to I needed to learn how to deal with challenges, how to keep calm, how to regulate a pulse, how to do all of those things. Mm. I didn't think about it in terms of regulating pulse, but I did, definitely did think about it in terms of nerves. You know, I really don't want to get nervous when I'm coming to account and I have to pay for something because I never had to do that. Yeah. You know, the, the, that's where it started. That's a really basic stuff I found really challenging initially and and over the over that time so i learned to put myself into really uncomfortable situations all the time um and uh, and i don't think i became a junkie for it but i definitely think that it helped me grow um and uh, and so i still wouldn't consider myself the toughest forward driver out there definitely not that's that's not who i am and that's not what i want to do either um i really enjoy um a bit of an adrenaline kick um, as long as it's safe enough for everyone involved. Um, but yeah, so that's probably the etiology of that sort of adventurism is, is really the seeking out of situations that make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. 
And it's such an important point in life, isn't it? Um, with that uh, sort of thinking about situations that are uncomfortable, but the importance of those situations mm. as mm. well that lead to growth or that mm. lead to an experience of sorts, um, yeah. good or bad, right? Or neutral, but yeah. um, identifying that. Um, recently, I was uh, talking to my partner and I was like, you know, I'd love to write a book about um, out of comfort zone situations. And it could be as small as having a cup of coffee at a cafe by yourself, right? Yes. Like yes. those are high risk. And, and what you said is high, what's you perceive to be high risk may be totally different from what someone else needs to be high risk. Like just that cup of coffee was transformational. Yeah going yes. someone's actually looking at me no one cares whether no. I'm here or not but it was so empowering and I was like it yeah. was lovely to sort of reflect on these out of comfort zone yeah. situations and go well what did it actually teach or not teach you sort of yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what you just said that's exactly one of the things I did do because you know, I, I, I did exactly that so I, I would go to a pub or I would go to uh, a cafe and I would take a book as a companion yeah. because that way I felt I wasn't looking stupid, you know? So that way I thought, no, nah, that's okay. I can sit here and sip my beer or sip my coffee or whatever, and I'm going to read a book. And you wouldn't believe how many conversations that started. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Isn't it? And like, yeah, it's so good. It's so wonderful. And what a luxury to be able to do um, all of these things in terms of out of comfort zone situations and engage in them. And going, no, well, why why don't we allow people to do it? Or, you know, what all these societal structures that are in place um, that say you should or you shouldn't, or this yeah. or that, all yeah. of the limits, why yeah. why are they there? Yeah. Yeah. Most of them are totally unnecessary. But you know, uh, that, that leads back to some of the kids we take out. Social anxiety is a big deal, mm -hmm. and it's become a big, big deal through COVID. Um, and, and in part through social media because indirect relationships with each other. Um, and so social anxiety is, is I'd say, I'd say maybe 20% of the young people that we take with us um, say that they're socially anxious. Um, and and the, often enough parents will deal with it in a way that they say, that's okay, you don't have to go to school. You can stay home today. Yeah. And I really worry about that because, mm -hmm. you know, if had my parents allowed me to stay home, Mm. I would have and yeah. I, I don't know and that's again that that's sort of learned dealing with challenge through avoidance um and discomfort is okay you know it's discomfort is okay so that's that's something that we very gently touch on with participants who come with us because we can't say it's not real because it is definitely real social anxiety is real mm. um uh, but encouraging someone to feel uncomfortable can be difficult when they feel that that means that they're not being validated in their experience. So it's a tricky conversation to have. Absolutely. Um, so before we do, and I will ask you this question sort of a little bit later on in the conversation about what an actual trip looks like, um, all of those sort of, you know, uh, bits and pieces about um, participants and what they've gained from it, different those stories. But where I do want us to go into is that defining point when you asked yourself the question, who am I and what do I want out of life? If we can, if it's not too difficult, but 
going back into that moment, what led to that question? What was your answer? And yes, that sort of bit of reflective thinking. I guess life's never a straight journey, is it? So no. so the, it's not like it's not like I was the kind of person, and they, they exist, who know when they're five years old that they want to become a GP and that's what they'll do. And that is perfectly their calling and that is everything to them. And, uh, and they'll find their purpose from that moment on. There were always those kids, you, you'll remember them from your school, even from primary school sometimes. And they were that, that they had that certainty about them in primary school, in secondary school, in uni all the time, and they still have. Yeah. And I always looked at those kids and went, wow, I'd love that. You know, I'd love that. You know, like what a, I, I, there was a mix of jealousy and, and admiration for those kids. And I always wanted to have that certainty. I never had. Um, and, and, um, and so I think, I think I had no idea who I was. Um, the only thing I knew not maybe not new clearly but the, the one thing I really believed in was that essentially all people are good mm. I believed I had a really strong faith in humanity if you like and and um and, and people at the core mm. being good people and and maybe doing things the wrong way um sometimes to get to an outcome that comes from a good spot in the, in the heart mm. um that, that was a really firmly held belief and um, there was that, number one. Number two, um, I wanted to live a life that was full of stimulus, um, intellectual stimulus in particular. I hate being bored. And I've become very destructive when I'm bored. I know that. Um, and, uh, and I have a self-righteous streak that's connected with us sometimes. And that's not a healthy way to be. Um, and so, so I, I knew those things about myself. I switched from pharmaceutical company, working in a pharmaceutical company in clinical trials management and, and marketing around pharmaceutical stuff into a population health role because I felt that the pharmaceutical industry didn't align with my values. I wasn't happy in that. It was good money, but it didn't align with my values. And that was in, um, I'd say, 2009 or 2008, somewhere around 2009 around there and I started working with um with a population health agency that that was training GPs or the the aim of which was to one of the aims was to train GPs to become prescribers of HIV hepatitis C and hepatitis B medication in the community um and hepatitis B is mostly a condition that affects or chronic hepatitis B affects migrants from certain countries or certain areas in the world because there was no childhood vaccination program um, hepatitis C infects mostly people who inject drugs, and HIV mostly in Australia, in Australia at least, infect, uh, uh, um, affects um, men who have sex with men. And so that meant working really closely with communities affected um, to find out what they were expecting from their healthcare and what would how that could work for them. And I was working really closely with GPs who were working mostly and were from those communities. And that was fascinating work. I loved everything about it. Uh, I thought that was the best thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of thought, wow, this is a totally different career to what I thought. And I went back to uni. Um, I, I dropped my previous course that I was doing in Sydney, uh, dropped out of that because I was bored with economics. 
Um, and uh, and then when I started doing that, I started, started studying Master of Public Health. And I really enjoyed myself um, for the first time properly doing an education um, or participating in education was stimulating and exciting and, and, and informing or informative. Um, and did a fellowship at the University of Melbourne Department of General Practice and the research project. Loved all of those things. That was awesome. And so I thought, well, I have a career in population health. Um, and I thought, well, you know, so I'm, I'm not too stupid, I think. I'm pretty energetic. Um, I probably can, you know, become a CEO and population health agency and really make a difference at a population level um, across a given population, whether it's Melbourne or further afield or whatever. Um, and I got headhunted for one of those positions and that went to shit. There's no other way of saying it. Um, and uh, the, I, there was a new CEO in that position she was horrendous. Within the first week, I had lots of staff coming to me with allegations of bullying, written complaints, all sorts. And I took her to the board and the board decided to stand by the new CEO and it caused the chair of the board to leave um, because he wanted to do something about it. I had a good reputation in the sector. Um, and at the same time, I got a call from my father saying that he's dying over in Germany. So that all happened sort of so I was in this executive role. I had picked a fight with the CEO who was fighting for her life. I picked a fight with the board um, and I had a whole heap of staff who have pinned the hopes on me to bring about change. My dad was dying. So I was really fragile, really, really fragile. I didn't realize quite how fragile I was at that moment. So a couple of things happened. Um, my dad was very important to me because he was very stable, a very stable, very kind man who could listen very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw him sort of as... If something really bad would happen to me, my mom and dad, my dad would be there. Um, but because of my dad's characteristics, I felt emotionally he was probably the most dependable person at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that safety net was going at the same time as I was being fragile. So, so you know, I had experienced this, this work situation. And, and what I realized in hindsight is that what happened there is that the way that this CEO and the board acted undermined completely my my faith in humankind being good at heart mm. um, completely you know went to that core value uh, it really destroyed that and put that on shaky footings mm. um, and so I guess that was 2013 that was a time I was incredibly shaky in so many different ways um, anyway my wife who's um, an absolute legend just said to me why don't you just quit um, just quit, go to Germany and spend time with your dad. Um, and that was what I did. Mm. And it was amazing. It was just beautiful. Um, and uh, so we did, you know, the advanced care planning. We sat outside in the garden. There was no time limit. So my wife just said, just stay as long as you need to. Yeah. We'll come after, you know, the school holiday is coming up. We'll just come after yeah. and just stay as long as you need to. Um, and so... Yeah, my dad and I had lots and lots of time together and I was getting answers about what happened between him and my mom. I was getting, you know, all of those things that were never talked about in the family were just, you know, because we were kids, right? So kids shouldn't be told, right? But kids know. So yeah. we all knew, you know, we knew under, we know in our hearts what had happened there. Whenever we tried to find out, we were given evasive answers. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I was getting answers about those kind of things that validated what my sister and I always thought. Um, and so that was really healing uh, at the time. And then looking after, I'm not sure, um, 
I'm not sure how your connection is with your family, your parents, but um, when, or if you've ever had the privilege of looking after someone who's dying, um, cancer is not a pretty death. Um, and, um, and essentially my father turned into, well, what my son was like when he was newborn, you know, the hair drops out, there's no muscles, there's an incredibly fragile, it's like a bird, you know, it's like a bird. I'm very small. I'm getting a bit emotional. Sorry. Um, a very, very small human being that's totally dependent upon you. Um, so you brush their teeth, you wash them, you you change their diapers, you change the bedding. Um, his wife and I would take turns each night sleeping next to him, holding his hand. You know, and um, and the GP would train me how to dial up the morphine. You know, and um, and so and then the GP would say, "I'll leave you alone now." And, and you do all of that. And what a huge privilege that was. And over those weeks, I think um, being there and doing that was incredibly sad, but also incredibly empowering in so many ways, because, well, it's, it's not a sudden thing. It's yeah. a, you have weeks to transition from I am the child to I am the carer. Mm. Um, and, and that's a nice gentle transition if you can give it the time um, and it allowed me I think to grow up you know I mean, that's not that long ago it's only 10 years ago I was, I was 35 um, but you know realistically if you look back on your life maybe or anyone who's listening maybe in hindsight you don't really ever grow up do you mm. so you know so there's there's this realization at the time of okay well that safety net is gone now I need to provide a safety net. That's another growth moment mm. of sorts. And so, so that was all happening at the time. And while I was over there, I got a call from... Okay, so you were there and you got a call. Yeah, so I, I got, well, it was an email from, um, from an organization that, um, that doesn't exist here anymore called Medicare Locals. There were 60 of those organizations around the country and they're all responsible for a patch to identify population health needs. And then they had money from the federal government to address those population health needs with a focus on primary care. Um, so general practice, allied health, um, to avoid hospitalizations, if you like. And so that was had been sort of the work I was doing beforehand um, uh, in many ways. And, and so I knew all of the players all across the state. Um, and so I knew this person who had asked me and he, had, he was a CEO and they let go of their executive team essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and big cultural problems in the organization at the time and so I just said you know what yeah sure and he says just you know just for three months to help us through and if you like it stay oh. um and so that was so December 2013 um a few days after my dad died mm -hmm. um I rode up I didn't own a car we had a motorbike in Melbourne because who needs a car in Melbourne um yeah. uh, uh, I rode up into Shepparton it was beautiful Sunday. It was very hot summer, um, and it was somewhere in the forty degrees or something. I rolled up, grabbed a coffee on Fry Street, and someone said, "Good morning." I'd never met this person before, oh. and I just thought, you know, that's so nice. You walk across the road, and people actually look each other in the face and say good morning. You know, and I thought that's nice. I grew up in a small village in in Germany, and so that was normal. And in Melbourne, that doesn't happen. And so that immediately made me go, yeah. So I didn't see that Shepparton is probably not the most pretty region. It's not Beechworth, is it? Yeah. So, so you know, it's not. Yeah, it's 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 not Dalesford. It's not Beechworth. Mm -hmm. um, but it had a beauty to it, 
um, an honesty to it that really resonated with me. Um, and so I thought that's a good start. And so I started, had a ball. I loved it. And we stayed. So Louise had made me sign, my wife had made me sign a little contract that said, if I don't like it, we are going back. Um, so she so she had she had the right to within a year at any point in time pull the pin and we'd move back to Yarraville. Um, and half a year later, you know, we were renting a house in the orchards in Sheb East um, and looked around. And half a year later, we thought, now we're staying. Um, and so we looked around, almost bought a house in Murchison, and then came across Dookie. And uh, and the first person we met there is one of your previous in, uh, um, uh, interviewees, and Serana. Um, so, yeah, so she was in the pub, in the Dookie pub at the time, as were all the other locals. Um, and so she came over immediately and says, we haven't seen you before. We need people in our primary school. We need kids in our primary school. So, um, so do you want to move? Yeah. <laughs> so, so she started sending us addresses. So she says, what's your number? So she started sending us addresses and contact details of people who are thinking about selling their house and stuff like that. Um, and one day we drove past a, a fence and on that fence was a number. And we called that number. It was a large sort of block or part of a farm. And we called them and said, well, are we willing to subdivide as a depends if we like you? <laughs> and they, they invited us for dinner and we had a chat with them. They're the same age as us, kids the same age. Uh, we got on like a house on fire and then we subdivided and they built a house in 2015, late, late 2015, moved into that house and, and sold a house in Melbourne and have never looked back. So that's, that's, so that's, part, that's part of that. You know, you asked about the moments that led to change and I think... And I think that that loss or that that becoming really wobbly in my core values moment, mm -hmm. and that state that wobbliness stayed with me for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say there was some serious damage done there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that stayed with me for a long time, but that was a key moment. Transitioning from pharma into population health and learning about the impacts beyond medical stuff on people's lives and well-being was critical. The um, the realization that um, that um, maybe I was a little bit naive at times was critical. The uh, my father's dying, the transition that, and the growing up that happened alongside, and the honesty that came with that was critical. Uh, the move to regional or rural Victoria and Dukey um, was critical. Um, so the return to roots in terms of living um, on the countryside and, and in communities and being part of communities and volunteering in those communities, being on a school council, doing all of those kind of things, mm. that was critical. Um, of course, having children is a huge part of that. Um, um, and then, and then um, there's another, another moment, maybe sort of my own sort of brush with anxiety and mental health um, was another critical input. Yeah. yeah. And, and was that brush um, with anxiety and mental health during 2013 or? No, that was, that came way later. I think it was a direct consequence of that. Right. 10 years later. Yeah. Um, so because I felt, I didn't, I didn't actually make sufficient change in my life as a result of those moments. Mm -hmm. I think I kept going on, I shifted location but I think I kept going on the trajectory of, well, you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So bottom level, you've got a physiological level, you know, all, all this sort of thing. The second level from the top of the pyramid is that self-esteem or esteem level. Mm -hmm. And I think I was really pure, functioning, very motivated really strongly by that esteem stuff. I hadn't actually really considered about realizing my potential or thinking about what I want to do. 
And so I was, I think, in hindsight, conforming to what other people expected from me. So people expected me to be a young CEO. And so I thought I need to come, I need to do that too. I need to meet those expectations. That became my expectations, right? So I was trying to read the room as to what people thought I was capable of and then made those expectations my own. That is really unhealthy, really, really unhealthy. Um, and I don't know where the etiology of that was. Maybe it has to do with how I grew up or whatever that was, or maybe um, my uh, lack of self-confidence as a result of not doing school as well as I probably could have had I gone uh, or had I applied myself and out of crashing out of uni um, mm. in the first place, you know, maybe the, the shame that came with that and that, that new fun, oh no, now I really need to get going and stuff. And, and then not knowing what I wanted to do, maybe picking up other people's expectations and making them my own was the way that goal focused then, right? So that those two things together. So that's what I was still zoning in on. I had a lot more fun in population health and I liked being out here, but that was still my, my the way I thought. Anyway, so the federal government changed and when the federal government changed to the liberal government, the liberal government shafted all Medicare locals and replaced them with half the number of organizations covering the same terrain called primary health networks. Um, and uh, so our medical local closed. Um, and so I, I knew that was going to happen. So it was pretty clear before I even moved up here, it was clear that that was going to happen if the government changed. So it wasn't a surprise. It was annoying, but it wasn't a surprise. Um, and I then started um, uh, managing or leading uh, University of Melbourne's Shepherd and Medical Center uh, here in town. And an amazing group of GPs there, um, amazing nurses, mm -hmm. uh, um, just a really good team. And um, and as I said before, um, when I get bored, I become destructive. Um, so mm -hmm. um, I was brought in to bring about a fair bit of change away from completely bug billing towards some private fees because viability of the practice was at risk as all general practices have experienced over the last few years. So making that shift was one of the things I needed to do, um, growing the practice to make it more financially viable while teaching a lot of medical students, it's not easy. So we grew to 13 doctors. So we had uh, done those things, we have done those things, but it was creaking and groaning. And, um, and the way that university clinics run is, you know, on the one side, you're working with patients, with the community. On the mm -hmm. other side, the university expects you to treat, uh, to, uh, to teach and develop medical students. And so there's a conflict there because, and, and they expect you also, it cost no money to them. So Medicare should be paying for all of those kind of things. That's a that's a huge conflict. Yeah. And so this internal conflict was there. And I think in the end, I probably lost my patience, frustration. I probably went back to myself, primary dealing with challenge of dissociate. So I buried myself in spreadsheets, mm. you know, and um, and and I knew that I didn't want to do that forever. I knew that. I knew that I didn't like the way that um, my employer at the time was thinking about its medical clinics. It had various um, um, uh, medical and, and primary healthcare clinics. Um, and I, I, I just wasn't satisfied. I, I was going nowhere. As far as I was concerned, I was going nowhere. Um, not stimulated, not interested enough. Um, didn't feel I was contributing value. Um, and so... So one day I was sitting at my, you know, just like, like, like now in front of my computer mm -hmm. and I thought I had a heart attack. So I had this big jolt going through my body and, uh, and I'd been staring at this screen. I didn't realize this before, but afterwards I'd been staring at the screen, I'd say for half an hour without moving a finger. 
mm-hmm. you know, and uh, yeah, it's really like this complete dissociation, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I had this this heart attack thing, and I called the GP um, in you know room next to me and said, "Hey, I think I'm having a heart attack." Yeah. Um, so they immediately did an ECG and all of those kind of things, referred me to a cardiologist. Nothing wrong with me. Oh. And uh, and so, well, I'm. I knew a bit about mental health and stuff like that. And so, so, so deep down, I knew it was an anxiety attack, a panic attack. That's what that was. Um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to acknowledge that. I really didn't. Because mm. I think at the time I saw that as a weakness. Um, and I really, I was, yeah, I didn't want to acknowledge that, but that's what it was. Um, and, um, and so I guess that led them. So I quit the practice. Um, and that position would have ended anyway because the, the University of Melbourne was co- amalgamating all of his teaching clinics into one with one match um, and, uh, and started consulting, which sort of was good because I had asked for consulting gigs all the time before and so I had work coming very, very easily. And that was better, but it was still the same. We're still working mm-hmm. on the same issues in the same ways and money was better, job was more stimulating, all of those things. That was good. Did that for a couple of years and I thought, nah, this is still I can't see myself doing this forever either and uh, and so um um during I, I did the fair leadership program and while there were aspects about it that I thought really could be approved um there was one moment in it that that um I'm not even sure whether that was the leadership program or the, whether that was Fiona Smolnars who was managing it or who was facilitating it at the time mm-hmm. I really like Fiona and we're friends and uh, and have a lot of admiration for her um, and, uh, and we did this session where it was really about identifying what our purpose is. Mm. Um, and because that is something that I had been concerned with for a little while then, you know, and that, that I hadn't quite crunched, I just mm. thought, well, stuff it, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to sort of population health approaches and look at community needs, what assets you have in place and how you might overlay them. Um, and so I, the third Venn diagram is what I love doing, you know, mm. so... What I love doing community needs the assets I have. Well, I've got four-wheel drives and all sorts of camping gear. I've got a whole shed full of it. Um, I'm pretty good with people. Uh, I really like doing new things and putting my stuff out there. There's mental health is a problem, particularly young people. And um, why not set up? You know, if, so I wrote myself a little note that's the first post on Instagram, the very first post, and says, if I ever got the chance, it's on a post-it note, if I ever got the chance, I'd um, run a forward drive touring program that sort of encapsulates a health promotion approach for young people in tricky situations. Um, and so, and then came probably a harder time where I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how. Um, I had no real avenue of, of transforming or, or making that happen. Um, and then a friend calls me, Daniel, and he says, uh, he's a dietitian I'd worked with in, in other jobs, Daniel Thompson, you might know him, he's a lovely guy. Um, and Daniel says, hey, mate, there's this, there's this shark tank sort of uh, grant going north of the river, you know, there's a room full of 100 people, you present your idea, and if they like it, they give you money. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a health promotion sort of focus, so it has to be about alcohol and other drugs, youth, mental health, Mm-hmm. Um, and cro- or chronic disease, uh, aging, sort of stuff. So those were the sort of limitations of it. I said, yeah, I know exactly what to do. This is what we're doing. There's a big drought up in New South Wales right now in the Riverina, and there's a drought report that's coming out from UNICEF that says young people need to give them a break, um, and they need uh, mental health support um, early on uh, because they get forgotten in these natural disasters. Um, and, uh, and this is what we can do. And he says, yeah, I love the idea. 
So we we submitted an application. We got through to the through the first round, and then had to practice our spiel. We we're given six minutes to pitch, and we got forty six thousand dollars that night and started running the first. So we had nothing. We, we only had printed a couple of shirts, right? We only had a couple of shirts, um, and we had all my gear. So so that was in May two thousand uh, nineteen. Um, and uh, 2018, August 2018, I think, was when I wrote myself that little note. Uh, in January 2019, Daniel calls me and asks me if I've got any ideas. By May, we got through the rounds and got $46,000 and then decided, okay, well, we want to set this up in a way that's actually not for personal gain. So it needs to be that, that, that values focus. Yeah. It has to be absolutely aligned with that. It can't be a goal focus. It has to be doing the right thing. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't actually, nothing matters except for doing the right thing and staying true to the purpose that we set up at the start. So we set it up as a, as a not-for-profit um, so that we can never get, you know, any of the assets would never be paid out to us. So there's never any financial interest. And that way we felt we'd be staying true to purpose and we also would never get into trouble between us, you know, about, you know, the financial, you know, if ever we were to split ways or whatever, what do we do with the assets? We would never have that problem because any of the assets that we have, if we ever wind up, just go to another charity. Mm -hmm. So that makes it easy, right? So, so that's how we set it up. And um, then we got, the hardest thing was to get insurance, um, including, you know, molestation clauses, all of those kind of things to do what we're doing, which is no one else is doing it. Yeah. Um, certainly not at the time and we're not aware of anyone taking the approach we're doing and then setting up sort of a, a semi-structured approach where we use validated theoretical frameworks and, and therapeutic frameworks to design the initiative and yeah. to implement and operate um, and so if you'd like the four-wheel drives are just a Trojan horse for four-day full-on social um, so, uh, social work intervention you know so so that's that's um it's like hidden veg in a spaghetti spag bowl right you know yeah. when you feed a spag bowl the, you give yeah. them veg, they, they just don't know it <laughs> you know so so that's essentially yeah so gives a bag is a trojan horse or a spag bowl hidden veg that's what it is so 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 that's that's how that started so and by november that year we had the first kids in the truck and, and on the road and it was it was way more successful than we thought it would be and the, the Shire that we worked with at the time, um, and this is interesting because the Shire we worked with at the time was Hay Shire. And you might sort of wonder why two blokes from Garwin Valley are working not within their own community, but there. Well, that was because there was absolutely no zero support here. There was just no support. So wherever we took it, there was just no support. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I'm still baffled uh, uh, about that. And that has changed considerably. Um, because once we got going, um, we got a fair bit of attention and then started delivering here with grants that we got from elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and once we started delivering and it worked, people got interested. And we've had really amazing support from the Lighthouse Project. Um, mm -hmm. So they fund uh, every year, they're funded at least part of two camps for Greater Shepherd Secondary College. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been amazing. Um, and uh, Greater Shepherd Foundation during the floods really um, came to the party and supported us, which was amazing. And the Department of Fairness, Families and Housing also came to the party since then. So um, the first three years, I had to work full-time in other work to pay for everything that Gizabank was developing and doing. So I funded the whole lot, um, gave it interest-free loans to buy cars, all of those kind of things. You know, it's, it, it, everything was stored on my property in my sheds. You know, yeah. we developed everything just out of our own pockets. 
um, because there was just no support whatsoever. We still don't have any core funding, right? So there's nothing like that. So we, we still, you know, so that's that's how that worked. But this year, this year, um, we'll be running, I think, 20 camps um, and plus lots of one-on-one, one-day adventures, individuals where we support them. And they're sometimes funded through child protection, sometimes through justice, sometimes through the NDIS, and sometimes through grants and sometimes through donations. And so, you know, others who came to the party are um, the Furfies, um, Gouge, um, uh, CAF Consulting, um, uh, just really amazing, you know, the support we got from local businesses mm-hmm. before we got any other philanthropy support. You know, that was just really cool. Um, they saw what we're trying to do and they thought it's a good idea. So that was really amazing. So, so as of this year, this is, this is all I'm doing. I've dropped all other work. There's one paid directorship I have, but this is all I'm doing. It's more than full time. So it's, it's cool. And we've got a good team. And, and uh, we now have a warehouse in Shepparton too. So we're, we're, we're now partially in Dookie on our two acres out there. We've got yeah. sheds out there. And then we've now also share, we're now sharing a warehouse with um, Know Your Roots and Point of Difference Studio, um, where I'm sitting right now. Amazing. Far out. Congratulations, Onk. That is. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. But wow, what an absolute course. Many different avenues to get to your prime purpose for now, yeah. anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But see, I'm so much more relaxed about these things now, you know? So it's sort of. Yeah. Like because I could use all the skills I developed in all the other parts of, of work that I've done before, mm-hmm. I could use to set up Gizabrak. Yeah. Um, and Daniel, who I started this out with, he's still on the board, he's yeah. still involved. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I can use everything, I, everything. I'm outside all the time. I'm problem solving practically, mm-hmm. you know, fixing something. I'm team working with different organizations, different people all the time, volunteering a lot of our time so it feels right and feels good and yeah. it never feels like work i never feel like oh i've got to get up and get to work. never ever ever yeah. i always feel like i can't wait to get to work you know it's nice that is incredible i did have one more question for you and this is sort of backtracking to your master of public health you yeah. mentioned that was the first time in an education setting that stimulated you intellectually and it I'm assuming there are other layers as well that it just sat really well with you could we unpack that a little bit to go what what did you get bored of like a number of times you mentioned that you get bored but why did master of public health why did that resonate with you yeah um so so I think sometimes when I when I think I've grasped the concept, I move on to the next thing. Mm. Okay. Because I feel like, yeah, okay, I got how that works. I don't need to know how I need to don't need to do it all the time. I clock that and I'm moving on to the next thing. Mm. So um, and sometimes there's a bit of ADHD stuff, I think, popping into that, you know. So I'm not a di- I don't have a diagnosis of ADHD, but I recognize in our participants, mm. I recognize myself a lot. Um, so I think that's that's part of the boredom aspect of it. Um, uh, the critical aspect of what I enjoyed about it, I think, was that it could apply directly to stuff around me. I could see, uh, I could see 
what I learned from a theoretic basis, I could see that all around me. Um, and I could relate that to all sorts of other stuff. And I loved it because essentially what you do in population health is you're, you're combining statistics, which is fun, um, and you're combining and, and, and intellectually stimulating. You, you're combining that with, and that's epidemiology related to that. So you, you're combining that with um, research. Um, uh, so with both qualitative and quantitative research. Um, and you're combining that with um, social sciences mm -hmm. uh, and economic sciences um, and with, um, with media stuff. Because a lot of the, so most of the theoretical frameworks deployed by health promotion specialists are either borrowed and stolen from advertisers um, or from psychologists. Uh, and they also steal from each other, right? So, so um, advertisers largely steal from psychology um, and, and, but they do it better than psychologists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I mean, that you really have to admire good advertisers, you know, yeah. you, no matter what, the, whether it's Coca-Cola or whatever it is, sure. because they nail psychology at a population level. Yeah. Um, and, and if we, if we population, and I always was interested in that side of things because it's stimulating, right? Lots of colors and things. And if, but if you, if you can apply what, what the industry does so well mm. in a population health framework with the values of population health, mm. you can really make a difference. And so, so I thought that was wicked, you know, that was, that was cool. That was like tricking, it was like tricking industry back, you know? So, so I thought that was cool. Um, so that was cool. And, and the, values of, the values of most population health practitioners are progressive. Um, and um, I would, I used to consider myself a fairly strong lefty. I don't agree with that about myself anymore. I'm probably a centrist, a progressive centrist. That's mm -hmm. probably where I would place myself. Um, and population health is quite closely aligned to left leaning to centrist, but progressive is always there. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing population health probably is not so progressive on is community, community, community. So it doesn't embrace technology to replace community links. And I think that's essential. That is absolutely central, um, and and uh, so I think it aligned well with who I actually was, um, yeah. and that was fun. Yeah, that's incredible um, to sort of think that anything we do, like throughout this conversation, one thing that I have taken out of it is anything we do in life, we need to be able to connect with at a deeper level we'll have all of these superficial levels. They are also necessary to get to the deeper yeah. part of it. Yeah. Well, at least in a hobby, you know, sometimes it's just not practical to expect that from your everyday work. And that's okay. You know, it's totally okay. But exactly. find yourself a hobby or something that allows you to connect in that way. Um, that does a lot already. That's right. No, Zong, thank you so much for taking the time out to share your chapter. Um, and also, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you've been, or maybe you want to share and we haven't gone there? I don't think so. The only thing I'd like to say is that I have amazing colleagues and the kids who come out with us are amazing that blow my mind every single day and I feel that our community our society rejects kids and doesn't place the value on them that they should 
um, I think we too easily label kids in one way or another. Um, and I, what we have seen is that the young people who are given to us by teachers who think that they're trouble, they're amazing. They're just amazing. They just haven't been given the opportunity to shine. Um, and, and we learn a lot from them all the time. And I'm deeply grateful to, to that, having that experience of, of seeing them shine. And that's really, really nice. And um, Zonk, how do people get in touch with you or if they want to be involved in some manner or whatever capacity that is? Yeah. Um, look, we always say we love volunteers, but this is a tricky one because um, the people who like to volunteer with us often are people who have retired. Um, mm -hmm. and, and while we really welcome that on camp, that can be tricky because it's very physical and 16 hours minimum work a day. Um, and, and, and they need to relate to young people. Um, and so often enough, what we'd like is people who are like you, Arti, you know, um, people who are currently working. At, so they need to be fit enough, life experienced enough to be able to understand who they are um, and really connect with the deeper thing and, and, and already have done that journey. Be between 30 and 50 years old and fit enough to, to scale, you know, Mount Cobbler and if needed, take someone down. Um, and so, uh, so it's a hard group of volunteers to find. We've got a small group who are very, very good and very committed and we'd like more of those. So if anyone's listening who says, yep, no, I know exactly what you were talking about there with the mental health stuff and with the sort of purpose value stuff. And yes, I can drive a four-wheel drive. And yes, I can listen really, really well. And yes, yes, I've got a really busy job. Um, yeah. uh, but if I can do two, two maybe a year, that'd mm. be that'd be amazing. Um, that's something we need um, sometimes. And you know what would be really, really nice also if there was someone listening who's uh, watching who's a mental health social worker or mm. a psychologist who um, could provide us with supervision. That would be amazing, huge, you know, every two weeks or every four weeks, one hour uh, with me and my core staff members to talk about what we've been experiencing and, and maybe okay. how we navigate some difficult situations and not charge us $1,000 for it. You know, that'd be awesome. Um, so those are the things that are really powerful, really helpful. That's incredible. Well, Zonk, maybe, you know, we probably need to start a fitness group. Yeah. It's saying. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Thank you so much for having me, Arthur. I appreciate it. Oh, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. And for anyone else that's listening to this conversation, please feel please share it widely. Um, we don't know who it's going to connect with. Uh, I'll be popping in all the links to your website your social media handles um so that people can get in touch with you song um and yes thank you to everyone that will be listening to this conversation it's going to be up on human chapters youtube human chapters podcast wherever you get your podcast um on and human chapters facebook as well so thanks guys <laughs>